You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting from the studios of WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhesky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. Later in the program, we hear a selection from Interchange on the memoir of Noel Ignatiev titled Acceptable Men, Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World. That steel mill is the Gary Works of U.S. Steel in 1972, the year that Ignatiev began working there. Interchange producer Doug Storm speaks with Michael Staudenmayer, an assistant professor of history at Manchester University in North Manchester, Indiana. More coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware, hosted by Richard Fish. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, September 29th. I'm Cade Young. Bloomington Utilities has recently advised residents of Bloomington and Monroe County to avoid draining treated water, such as pool water, into nearby drains or waterways. Treated water contains chemicals such as chlorine that have multiple negative side effects for the environment. These chemicals can contaminate fish and hurt organisms that live on the ground or in the soil. Bloomington Utilities recommends that residents allow their pools to sit untreated for at least seven days before draining, which allows ample time for the pool water to lose the harmful chemicals before drainage. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources has identified a new invasive species found for the first time in the state. This species called the spotted lanternfly is a plant hopper insect that causes serious damage to gardens when feeding. They cause plants to wilt and die after feeding on the plant. In addition, the insects excrete a sugary substance that attracts black mold, which can cause further damage. The spotted lanternfly has an identifiable bright red and spotted coloring on its wings. The Indiana DNR is asking for citizens to report any sighting of the species to their email address at DEPP at DNR.IN.GOV. Indiana residents have wondered when to expect the most optimal time for the best fall colors from the changing foliage. According to the Smoky Mountains Fall Foliage Prediction Map, central Indiana should reach the peak of the season around October 25th, with weeks before and after being perfect times for those fall photos. Some of the best locations to view the fall foliage include Brown County State Park, the Monon Trail, Lake Monroe, and Clifty Falls State Park. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB and for Nathaniel Weinsaffel, I'm Cade Young. At the 
Bloomington Utilities Service Board's September 27th meeting, Director of Utilities Vic Kelson explained the water's flavor that Bloomington residents have been experiencing. I just wanted to touch base with everyone on the uh, taste and odor issues that came up recently. Um, it, uh, it came on us all of a sudden. Uh, this is um, a naturally occurring uh, substance uh, that uh, comes in from the lake. It's called MIB. Well, there's two chemicals, MIB and Jasmine. Um, there uh, was a large algal bloom in the lake, uh, which led to increasing concentrations of those chemicals. Uh, and it was apparently more than the activated carbon feed rate we were using uh, could get out uh, at the time. Uh, this was the first time since 2016 that we've had any taste and odor complaints at all. Uh, this, uh, if you know, people have been around for a while, remember uh, this used to happen every summer through most of the summer, we uh, had the problem of the lake, uh, of the water tasting like a lake or like a fish. So um, we're certainly next year, we're, we're, uh, we're looking into approaches we can take to be a little bit more aggressive and watching for this to happen again. Uh, next year, we've been looking at some some of the technology that we already have and looking at practices at the plant so we can try to get ahead of it a little quicker. Uh, our staff at the plant uh, increased the feed rate of activated carbon and also the um, uh, another chemical uh, additive that uh, can help break down that MIB. So uh, we haven't had any taste. Uh, we're tasting the water and smelling the water at the plant every single day. Uh, I think it's every hour of every day. And we haven't had uh, any issues at the plant for, um, for several days now, maybe a week. Kelson noted that it takes seven to 10 days for water to get to locations farthest from the water treatment plant. So it might take a bit longer for the treated water to be distributed to everyone. Board member Megan Parmenter asked about the amounts of chemicals they are adding to the water and if they are still safe levels for consumption. Kelson said that they are still very low levels and assured the board that the water is safe to drink. Uh, we're nowhere near the limit for either one of them. Uh, we've been feeding it at low dosages right along. Uh, so we, we, did, we did have plenty of room to, to adjust. Um, as for the, the condition of the water, the, uh, we, we got some data from the lab uh, yesterday and uh, uh, well, I guess it came today, but we did get some information from the outside laboratory that samples this, it shows that the, the algal bloom has diminished dramatically since last week. Um, you know, we had that, we had a very long stretch of temperatures in the 90s and no rainfall. And uh, that's a bad combination late in the summer uh, to have that happen. So um, it, it is attenuating now naturally, and uh, we will be watching that and, and easing back off uh, as, things, uh, as things continue to improve. He recommended putting ice in your water and using water filters like carbon filters or reverse osmosis filters until the problem is resolved. The next meeting will be held on October 12th. Up next, WFHB correspondent Tilly Robinson provides an update on unemployment in Indiana after the State Department of Workforce Development released its numbers for the month of August. Robinson has more. On September 
September 17th, the Indiana Department of Workforce Development released its August unemployment report. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, last month's state unemployment rate held steady at 4.1%, below the national rate of 5.2%. That means over 130,000 Indiana residents are out of work and looking for jobs. Economist Michael Hicks from Ball State University explained that Indiana's economic recovery has lagged. To put it in context, the last several months have seen Indiana perform much more slowly than the nation as a whole. Um, that's disappointing given that the nation had a reasonably good June and July of job creation. Indiana lagged as a percentage shift. Um, we were growing at about half the rate as the nation as a whole. And then uh, we actually saw in August the nation, uh, the national economy slowed substantially. It grew at about a quarter of the rate that it did in, in July. But Indiana actually saw um, uh, employment decline by 4,400 jobs. Indiana's private sector employment increased by 72,000 over the past year, representing a partial recovery from COVID-19. However, private sector employment declined slightly during August with a net loss of around 3,400 workers across the state. The declines were concentrated in the manufacturing and leisure and hospitality sectors. According to Professor Hicks, those decreasing numbers are likely linked to a faltering COVID-19 recovery. We saw a very steep decline in employment in those face-to-face industries and leisure and hospitality and accommodation that are most immediately susceptible to COVID. So Indiana's very poor vaccination rates are likely beginning to, you know, temper economic growth and recovery from the pandemic. Last year, Congress expanded federal unemployment benefits under the CARES Act in response to the pandemic. However, the federal benefits program ended September 6th. Earlier this year, 26 states tried to cut off the expanded benefits ahead of their expiration date this month. Indiana was one of those states, until Governor Eric Holcomb's decision to stop paying federal benefits was reversed in court. However, several studies found that cutting benefits had only a modest effect on employment. Essentially, it increased hardship for the unemployed, while spurring only relatively small numbers of people back to work. In fact, states that cut benefits may have slowed economic recovery by reducing the amount of money residents had to spend. That's why Professor Hicks says the nationwide end of the federal program is unlikely to help the Indiana economy. It seems very unlikely that we'll see a big burst of employment. In fact, I think the opposite is likely the case, that the um, there's a combination of you know, COVID spread in Indiana that affects workers who have children in school. So that's going to reduce the supply of labor. And at the same time, the demand for labor is going to be weakened because COVID is keeping people out of restaurants and retail and and, and bars and entertainment facilities now that COVID is once again uh, spreading fairly heavily across the state. The September jobs report will be released a week from Friday. For WFHB, I'm Tilly Robinson. Now it's time for your feature report. Today we hear a selection from Interchange on the memoir of Noel Ignatiev, titled Acceptable Men, 
life in the largest steel mill in the world. That steel mill is the Gary Works of U.S. Steel in 1972, the year that Ignatiev began working there. Interchange producer Doug Storm speaks with Michael Staudenmayer, an assistant professor of history at Manchester University in North Manchester, Indiana. He's the author of Truth and Revolution, a history of the Sojourner Truth Organization, 1969 through 1986, published by AK Press. The conversation centers on the kind of activism that entails factory work as the focus of political change. we're going to talk about his memoir, Acceptable Men. Um, but before we do, uh, let's, I guess, let's talk a little bit about your work on the Sojourner Truth Organization, because uh, in the memoir, Noel does talk a little bit about its formation and what its intentions are. Not very much. Um, the book is uh, a light touch in a lot of ways, but uh, this is something you've studied quite a bit. You've, quote unquote, written a book on it. Uh, so the Sojourner Truth Organization, uh, often referred to simply by its acronym STO, was a small revolutionary group based largely but not exclusively in Chicago um, that was in operation from the very end of 1969 until sometime in the second half of the 1980s. Nobody can quite agree what marked its demise. There was no formal statement of, you know, we're done. Um, and Noel was a member of the organization for all but the last maybe couple of years uh, at the very end. Um, Noel was one of the, the, the heavies, this group of three men who were longtime members of the organization. The other two were Don Hammerquist and Ken Lawrence. Um, and they were all uh, intellectual powerhouses um, with lots of prior experience in varying wings of the left before they came together inside uh, STO. Um, and the organization as a whole did something that I think is pretty remarkable in the history of the left in this country in that it balanced a deep intellectual commitment to really careful, thoughtful, non-orthodox, non-rote uh, attempts to understand the world in which we live and theories that might help us change the world um, alongside a powerful commitment to practical action. Um, and you can get a sense of some of that practical action from Noel's decision to take a job in the steel mill. And he says at one point in the book that he didn't even live in Gary when he took the job. He was still living in Chicago, but was so committed to the project of kind of revolutionary work at the workplace and in industrial, large, heavy industry settings in particular, um, that this was a commitment that he and other members of STO shared throughout much of, not the entire existence of STO, um, but much of the existence of the organization. This is an organization that maybe never had more than 100 members. Uh, you know, that obviously puts real limits on what you can accomplish practically and also on what you can accomplish in, in, in intellectual or theoretical terms. So STO, to me, was an inspiring uh, attempt to combine those two aspects. Uh, when I was working on the book, Noel offered a line, uh, you know, he's, he was full of these sort of pithy one-liners and, and he offered a, a, a line that for several years was the working title of my book. And in the end of the book is called Truth and Revolution. Uh, but 
Noel said what he liked about STO was that it was a group of revolutionaries who tried to think. What I wanted to do also is try to understand uh, this sort of action of putting oneself into the workplace to begin to shape or try to shape the workplace, shape the people of the workplace, shape the conversations of the workplace, et cetera. So it's it's one of those things that, that I think, are, again, may be hard for, for some people to understand is that sort of um, act of employment, right, that is not about employment. They weren't there to have jobs and security and try to you know, make a living. They were there to do this other thing. Is there a way to talk about that so people understand that kind of activity? If I were to say to myself, I'm going to spend 10 years in a factory trying to raise consciousness, it would be a hard thing for to, to convince myself to do. <laughs> I don't, yeah. you know, I'm not trying to joke about it. It's just kind of like, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. It certainly was not my experience. Again, coming of age a couple decades later, I was active in lots of different, you know, small collectives of varying sizes. Uh, and there was never a conversation of, of, of that sort, right? There was much more of a, okay, you can pretty much have most jobs that you would want. You can't be a cop, that sort of thing, um, and be part of these kind of radical collectives. Um, but there was not a clear link in that era between the kind of job you held and the sort of political work that you did. Um, and, you know, I think that as my kind of generation has, uh, has grown older and moved away from, you know, whatever low-end jobs we could get that would pay the bills and allow us to spend more of our time doing activist stuff, for instance, I would guess that the vast majority of the people with whom I've stayed close have ended up in two employment fields, right? Either in education or in healthcare. But that's not the same thing as the kind of decision uh, that Noel and you know, literally thousands of other people in many organizations made in the late 60s, early 70s to take jobs uh, in these factories, right? Large factories in Noel's case, small factories in the case of Dave Ranney, who you mentioned. It's just a very different model. At the same time, Noel used to tell a story about uh, a guy, another guy who had been in, in STO who also worked in um, in Gary, but when STO underwent a, a sort of political split, you know, this particular guy became more or less disaffected from the organization and and stayed in in the steel mills, right? And got kind of into the union reform world, um, and that became his thing. And, and Noel was always critical of that as well, right? He said it's important to be uh, what we might call embedded. But at the same time, from Noel's perspective and that of a lot of other members of STO, it was also important to not lose the sense of revolutionary politics, right? To not lose the, the notion that something beyond simply the work is also necessary. And that's why I, I love some of the, um, the vignettes uh, in Noel's uh, memoir and that are, that are about things that happen outside of the, outside of the gates, right? The, that are not just about what's happening on the job, although that's the, the primary focus of the book. It is hard for people in the 21st century to understand on a particular level, you know, the kind of commitment that's involved in saying, this is the sort of work I'm going to take on 
regardless of whether it's the kind of work I want to take on. And yet at the same time, I think there is a generation of leftists in the United States today. I think we've seen this, especially since COVID, so many radicals involved in the healthcare industry, you know, not necessarily because of a political analysis of the conjuncture, you know, in healthcare, right? Is, is it a choke point for the economy or for society or whatever? More because A, it's a growth sector of the economy. So jobs are plentiful and available um, in a way that they're certainly not in most factory scenarios today. Um, and B, it's a job where people can feel some sense of doing something productive in the sense of helping others, right? And I think that matters to a lot of people on the left. That aspect was never really a factor for people like Noel and other folks. They took some solace, I think, in saying, okay, in the free society that comes after the revolution, we'll probably still need to make some steel. So, you know, it's this is a, a valid job, right? It's not like you're becoming an insurance salesman or something that won't have to exist after we're in the free society that we all want. But there was a kind of asceticism or almost a, a sort of martyrdom around, okay, this is this is the job. It's the job because this is where the people are, not it's the job because this is anything that I um, am personally excited to do. Now, for some people, absolutely. They're excited to, to work with their hands. They're excited to build things, et cetera. Um, but for most people who end up in factory jobs through the kind of political awareness that animated Noel's decision, um, that's not really the case. The book uh, definitely is uh, a small slice of STO life. So, so if you come to one book of Noel uh, Ignatiev's, mm -hmm. and it's this one, which is a short mm -hmm. book, as you know, it's roughly 110 pages. It's 17 chapters. Uh, it's I I find it extremely well paced, extremely well structured, poetically structured, even like the mm -hmm. the book is so small. And yet so big at the same time. I think it requires you to kind of figure out, you know, how to sort of think about the world that it takes place in, take the yep. action of each chapter and expand it uh, as, yes. best, as best you can. Hard to do. Most of us, in two, again, in 2021, can't really do that. Um, <laughs> you know, we can't really go back to 1973 or 72 or whatever it was to to understand you know, the world. But the relationships in the books in the, in the book itself are so, I think, pretty well um, written that you're able to understand that, you know, do you think it's sort of true to the the person you think Noel is, was, uh, true to his analysis itself, right? True to the person you've been describing. Mm -hmm. uh, and is it is it romantic? You know, is the book overly romantic, um, even, even in its thumbnail sketch way? Yeah. I, I love that phrase that it's both small and large, mm. right? That, um, you know, you are, uh, uh, this is especially the case because Noel was like myself, a, a trained historian and you know, historians are all about the footnotes mm -hmm. and, and there's none of that in this book. This is, you know, as Dave Ranney says in his, his little intro, this could have been a novel, right? That might've been uh, its eventual home had Noel lived longer would have been as a, a fictionalized account. I love that it is, it, it's with us as memoir, um, but the, the writing is, as you say, I think novelistic in, a, in a, a really positive way. I think it is absolutely true to Noel as I knew him, certainly. And so I, I think it's, uh, it's beautiful in the simplicity of the writing that still gives us this very full sense of these characters. And yeah, I was, I was, I was really pleased with the development that he gives to, to Jackson. 
Um, and it, it just made me happy to see that that was not a kind of passing reference as the as the book went along. That it was a recurring that he was he was such a central character, as you said, sort of almost the the Noel and, and Jackson story. I liked that piece of it a lot. Last but not least, we have another edition of Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB Community Radio. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Back in the 60s, there was a hit song called Crystal Blue Persuasion, and I never figured out what that meant. Now, here's a look at some kinds of persuasion that can make you feel not only blue, but seriously poor. Persuasion cons are an ancient swindle, but they always look brand new. The swindler tries to persuade you of something, which apparently has nothing to do with money. Once you're convinced, the money angle enters the picture as a coincidence, something unintended and unplanned, so you don't suspect that's why the whole game was set up. Take the sweetheart swindle. The swindler develops a relationship with you, convinces you that it's true love. Persuading you that he or she is in love with you is much easier done from a distance, using letters, phone calls, emails, texts, and social media. But then, your distant dinamarata needs money to settle a debt, to get out of jail, or simply to travel and be with you forever. So you cough up. After all, how could someone who loves you want to hurt you? And then your love and your money both disappear. Today, the Internet has given the sweetheart swindle a huge boost. More and more con artists are discovering that they can work more and more suckers at once than ever before. Another classic persuasion scam turns that idea on its head. The scammer persuades you not that you're loved, but that you're cursed. Okay, okay, this might bring on visions of a fake gypsy fortune teller staring into her crystal ball and asking you to cross her palm with silver. Something very much like that was doubtless popular way back before the Egyptians first noticed the Nile River, and is still practiced even today among the superstitious. Again, on the Internet, this scam has roared back to life worldwide. Ever see a pop-up on your screen telling you your computer is infected with a virus and asking you to click here to clean it? If you do, you probably will end up with an infected computer. In 2004, a company called Datalink Computer Products persuaded one wealthy sucker that his computer was being targeted and kept charging him for additional security services. By the time he twigged to the truth in 2010, he had forked over millions of dollars. A persuasion con game depends on persuading the sucker, and I hope it won't be you, that something very good or very bad is true when it really isn't. In either case, it's something you can't or probably won't 
check out yourself, and it doesn't appear to have anything to do with money at first. So anytime anybody, especially someone you've just met, tries to persuade you, check out what they're saying yourself, if you can, and if you can't, beware. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel, Tilly Robinson, and Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Doug Storm. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer 